We will be reading from Psalm 91. If you don't have a Bible or didn't bring one with you, there should be a black Bible in front of you, uh, beneath the chair in front of you. And again, we'll be reading from Psalm 91. Let's go ahead and pray before we do that. Heavenly Father, it is good to be in your presence this morning and worship you. I pray, God, as we turn our attention to the reading and preaching of your word, that you would soften our hearts and that you would open our ears. God, teach us this morning. Correct us where we need to be corrected. Encourage us where we need encouragement. I pray that you would be uh, with Pastor Adam this morning. Uh, fill him with your Holy Spirit. Help him to preach your word in spirit and in truth. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Psalm 91. He who dwells in the shelter of the Most High will abide in the shadow of the Almighty. I will say to the Lord, my refuge and my fortress, my God in whom I trust. For he will deliver you from the snare of the fowler and from the deadly pestilence. He will cover you with his pinions, and under his wings you will find refuge. His faithfulness is a shield and buckler. You will not fear the terror of the night, nor the arrow that flies by day, nor the pestilence that stalks in darkness, nor the destruction that wastes at noonday. A thousand may fall at your side, ten thousand at your right hand, but it will not come near you. You will only look with your eyes and see the recompense of the wicked. Because you have made the Lord your dwelling place, the Most High, who is my refuge, no evil shall be allowed to befall you, no plague come near your tent. For he will command his angels concerning you to guard you in all your ways. On their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. You will tread on the lion and the adder, the young lion and the serpent you will trample underfoot. Because he holds fast to me in love, I will deliver him. I will protect him because he knows my name. When he calls to me, I will answer him. I will be with him in trouble. I will rescue him and honor him. With long life, I will satisfy him and show him my salvation. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Well, good morning. Libby and I are excited to talk to you about what's going on in our lives after uh, the service today, but worship services are for God, and so we are back in Exodus, continuing our series through Exodus. We've been looking at the Golden Calf episode in Exodus chapter 32. want to encourage you to join me there. Last week, Pastor Mike helped us to see how all of us struggle with idolatry. It's not just an ancient Jewish problem, but it's something that all of us deal with. This week, I'd like to unpack the whole story, do basically a survey of the whole story, and then ask, what does this teach us about God? Uh, And, since we've learned that about God, so what? So that's what we're going to look at here this morning. It begins uh, a long time before. I've got kind of an echo. Do you hear an echo? No? No? Okay. That's just in my own mind then. Okay. This begins... Wow. Wow. This begins much earlier in Exodus. Um, You remember back in chapter 20, uh, God gave them the Ten Commandments. And then for a few chapters after that, uh, chapters 20 to 23, we have the Book of the Covenant. 
And uh, this whole section is God introducing the covenant. So if you flip through with your thumb and you look at those chapters, you can see that that is happening there. And then at the end of all of that, you have, uh, you have the people agreeing to what God has presented. Exodus 24, verse 3, Moses came and told the people all the words of the Lord and all the rules, and all the people answered with one voice and said, all the words that the Lord has spoken, we will do. And then you remember they had that covenant meal. The elders and the 70 leaders were all invited to come up the mountain and have a covenant meal with God. This wasn't just dinner together as friendship, but it was a meal that symbolized that we have agreement together around what has just been put forward from chapter 20 to 23. And so just by way of reminder, just a few sentences here from Exodus 24. Then Moses and Aaron, Nadab and Abihu, and 70 of the elders of Israel went up and they saw the God of Israel. There was under his feet, as it were, a pavement of sapphire stone, like the very heaven for clearness. And he did not lay his hand on the chief men of the people of Israel. They beheld God and ate and drank. So that was the introduction of the covenant, and then it was ratified. Both parties, uh, God's people and God, both said, yeah, we'll do this. This is good. We like the covenant. We will do it. Everything that the Lord has spoken, we will do. But then you have a breaking of the covenant. And that's in Exodus chapter 32. Right after the people said, yeah, we'll do that. That's awesome. They turned around and they broke the covenant. Exodus 32 verse 7. And the Lord said to Moses, so Moses is up the mountain and he's getting the commandments and he's all ready to come down and tell them about it and and stuff. But he's been up there for a while. And the Lord said to Moses, go down for your people whom you brought up out of the land of Egypt have corrupted themselves. Now that first sentence is disturbing in a lot of ways. Obviously, the fact that they've corrupted themselves, but also notice your people whom you brought up out of the land of Egypt. There's already a little bit of separation. These have been my people, and I want you to go and talk to my people. He's saying to Pharaoh, let my people go. Now, all of a sudden, these are Moses's people. It's kind of like maybe a dad or a mom saying your children are, uh, you know, out of control here. They have turned aside quickly out of the way that I commanded them. They have made for themselves a golden calf and have worshipped it and sacrificed to it and said, These are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. And the Lord said to Moses, I have seen this people, and behold, it is a stiff-necked people. In other words, they're not bowing their head in worship. They're stiff-necked. They're going to do what they want to do, regardless of what God says. This corruption, of course, that he talks about, is a rejection of God, and it is shocking. In the Exodus story, many of you have grown up in the church, and so you're familiar with these stories and so on, and so they don't have the shock value that they would have if you were just reading this like a piece of literature, and you come to this part of the story, and you're expecting things are going to get really awesome here, right? You've got all these agreements, and there's a meal. Moses is up getting the stuff, and then boom, you've got this horrible thing that actually threatens to undo it all. You had the 10 plagues, the Passover, the Red Sea, bringing his people out. Then you have 10 commandments and the covenant meal and all these promises about a promised land. Everything is now threatened by what the people have done here in chapter 32. When we lived in Israel 20 years ago, there was a discussion group between Christian and Jewish university students at the Hebrew Union College. And the subject that day was sin. Uh, In Reformed Judaism, the definition of sin is missing the mark. And so we decided to have a discussion about the fact that as 
uh, as Christians, we understand that sometimes sin is missing the mark, but there's a whole other broad range of definition to this word uh, that sometimes it's missing the mark, but not always. Sin is sometimes described, and I would say usually described, as a deliberate intentional rebellion. And one of the Christian students in this uh, debate brought up this very text here in Exodus. He said the golden calf episode was a little bit like the honeymoon night that the, that the husband goes out to get ice while the wife sleeps with the bellhop. This was not just a missing the mark like, oh, I was trying, but this was a deliberate and intentional and quite shocking rebellion and betrayal and adultery that happened here. Uh, in fact, God says in verse 8, they turned aside quickly. This seems to be what is bothering God. They turned aside quickly. Like, like you, you know, your breath still smells like the meal that we all had together where we all agreed to all of this. And then you're, you're going and you're following after another God. And so the response that God has to this is wrath. It is not just a legal punishment of sin like, oh, I need to do this because I'm a righteous judge. But this was wrath. This was visceral almost, if you want to use an anthropomorphism to speak about God. He responds with wrath. Uh, Some covenants in the Bible are conditional. Others are unconditional. This particular covenant was conditional. In other words, if you obey, I will bless you. If you don't obey, then you will die by the sword, die by famine, and so on. And that is what is happening here. So the first instance that we see of God's judgment coming down on the people, which must include death because death is the penalty for sin that is set up within the first few chapters of Genesis. So the very first thing that we begin to see is in chapter 32, verse 26. Moses said, who's on the Lord's side? So he goes down the mountain, finds out what's going on, and he says, who's with me? In other words, but, but really he says, who is on the Lord's side? Come to me, he says, and all the sons of Levi gathered around him. So you can imagine this scene. I don't know why somebody hasn't made a good movie about this particular uh, scene, perhaps because it would be R-rated um, because it's so intense. But so all the sons of Levi come and they gather around him. So these are the priests, right? And they've all got swords. So these weren't just like lowly little waifish monks or whatever, but they all come running around him and they've all got a sword. And Moses sends them out to go and kill people throughout the camp. Presumably, this isn't in the text, but presumably the people who were most responsible for what had just happened here. And we're told in verse 28 that about 3,000 men of the people fell. So this is phase one of God's response to what has happened here. And uh, down in verse 35, God also sent a plague. And we're not told if anyone died from that plague, but certainly they got sick. And usually people die by the plague. So this is the scene, right? We're talking about the setting. This is the setting. This is kind of the introduction to this particular account is we've got a really, really bad situation going on. And here we see Moses begin to shine. This is leadership at its best. Uh, And I think we can learn a lot from Moses um, as he handles these couple of chapters. The first thing that he does is he prays. Even before he goes down the mountain is he prays because he knows what this means. This is disaster. This could mean that everybody's about to be wiped out. Uh, And keep in mind that the context here is that he's sitting on top of Mount Sinai, which is smoking like a kiln, and there's fire, and there's lightning, and earthquake, and so on, as God is interacting. And so this is not 
some small light, whoops, we shouldn't have said that. I'm really sorry about that. But this is a big deal. This is a covenant-breaking situation, which we see Moses understanding when he breaks the tablets, symbolically breaking the covenant there. So he begins by praying for the people, even before he goes down. In fact, even before he goes and he finds um, Joshua, who was kind of halfway up the mountain. So Joshua is hearing what's going down in the camp, but he doesn't know what it is, and he thinks it's war. And it's so interesting that Joshua stays there waiting for Moses. He stays there. He thinks war is happening in the camp, but he's been told to stay, and he stays. And he waits until Moses gets there, and Moses, uh, he says, look, I think I hear war in the camp. And Moses says, it's not war, but it's singing. And they end up going down. But even before that happens, Moses hasn't done anything yet, and he prays. That's very interesting. I also think it's instructive, not that we have to pray before every little thing that we do, but I think it's instructive that at this moment, in all, some, some theologians have called this a second fall. Like, this is a big deal. You've got this restoration that's happening and this massive break of covenant. Immediately, Moses goes to his knees, and in Exodus 32, verse 12, I'm just going to read one sentence of his prayer. This is worth studying all of it. God, uh, Moses says to God, turn from your burning anger and relent from this disaster against your people. Next thing that Moses does after he prays is he goes down and he puts a stop to the sinning. Verse 21, he took the calf that they had made and burned it with fire and ground it to powder and scattered it on the water and made the people of Israel drink it. <laughs> That's pretty intense. And uh, people have wondered, well, what exactly is the symbolism there? I have my favorite uh, interpretation, and I think it has to do with what, where that all ended up at the end of the process, but who knows what happened there. But basically, he took, he took this calf, and everybody ate it. And, uh, but the main thing to see here is that Moses got into the middle of everything, and he put a stop to what was about to bring on serious destruction, like complete destruction of the people. He put a stop to it. The next thing that he does is he checked in with Aaron. He basically goes up to Aaron, and they were using, you know, very polite language with each other, apparently. But he basically says, what is going on? <laughs> what, is, what happened? What are you doing? Kind of a thing. And, and Aaron's response is so unacceptable that it's actually a little funny. And I, I struggle because I'm not sure if God thinks this is funny. Like, as now as we're reading through this story, his response is so ridiculous that it kind of makes you chuckle, but I'm not sure if that's appropriate. But anyway, here's what Aaron says in verse 22. Let not the anger of my Lord burn hot. You know the people that they're set on evil, for they said to me, make us gods who shall go before us. As for this Moses fellow, which is intentionally disrespectful, the people are like, we don't know where this Moses guy went. And yet it has been clear up till now that God has appointed this Moses fellow to be the one that tells them exactly what to do and when to do it. And they ought to wait. They say, well, it's been a few days. It's been like a week. We haven't seen it. Well, it doesn't matter. Hang on a second, and he'll be back. This is the way that it's going to be. But as for this Moses fellow, the man who brought us up out of the land of Egypt, we don't know, not, we don't know what has become of him. So I said to them, this is Aaron talking, so I said to them, let any who have gold take it off. So they gave it to me, and I threw it into the fire, and out came this calf. I mean, that's fun. that is funny, right? I mean... And, and it's also interesting that Moses doesn't even respond to him. So, and we have to read into this. We don't know what he was thinking. Some commentators think that Moses thought, well, maybe that's what happened because he's 
not beyond thinking that there might be some kind of demonic power that could do this, but more likely, I think, is that Moses looked at him like, okay, I'm going to go talk to somebody with a mind on, and, and we're going to, yeah, this is a serious leadership failure. So after some questions, he figures out what's going on, he puts a stop to it, and he talks to Aaron, and, and immediately Moses knows what's going on. It's leadership failure. Leadership failure. Verse 25, Moses saw that the people had broken loose, for Aaron had let them break loose. That breaking loose, it would be like, what if we took this building and we put, say, 200 elementary school kids in it for three days? You could get some piles of food here and some piles of Band-Aids, like nobody's going to get hurt or anything. But no adults, no parents, just a bunch of elementary school kids for three days. What would happen? I'm guessing we would need to do some reupholstery and that kind of thing. Okay, so this is the breaking loose. There is, you know, people running around screaming and yelling and there's all this stuff going on. So Moses is not seeing a well-organized, ordered environment where people are safe, where people are calm, where people are worshiping the Lord as they ought to be. Instead, you have chaos. And as I'm imagining this, I'm imagining that some people were kind of the ringleaders of it all, you know, running around, screaming and yelling and shouting and doing all kinds of weird things. You probably had some other people kind of cowering around like, I don't know about this, you know, kind of a thing and talking to their friends and they don't know what's going on. It's a it's just chaos. He comes down into chaos, which is why um, Joshua, when he hears it from up in the mountain, thinks that it sounds like war. (laughs) So he checks in with Aaron. The next thing that he does is he begins this punishment, sending the Levites to kill. Uh, which is exactly what needs to be done. It is the right punishment for sin. And Moses knows this. And he is hoping that this is going to be good enough. Go and kill some thousands of people. And there we go. And hopefully that's going to be enough. And God tells him in a moment here that it's not. But then they have an interesting back and forth. He prays again. Moses prays again. Intercession is praying for other people. And Moses is a prayer warrior intercessor here for the people. In fact, that's most of these chapters. It is the back and forth dialogue between Moses and God with all the people standing over there kind of like hoping like what's going to happen to us type of thing. It's a conversation between Moses and God. God had threatened to wipe everybody out. So this looks really bad. And in fact, in verse 10, if you go back up to uh, Chapter 32, verse 10, God said, now, therefore, let me alone that my wrath may burn hot against them and I may consume them in order that I may make a great nation of you. That's a that's a amazing offer. He's basically saying we're going to start over here and you're going to be kind of the new Abraham. And from your descendants, I'll raise up some worshipers, but I'm going to wipe out everybody here. So stand back. Uh, quite an offer and it's interesting to wonder what Moses would have said if he was presented with that option at the burning bush because back then Moses was pretty happy to be kind of all by himself out in the wilderness with nothing but goats and that kind of stuff like it's kind of nice out here and I don't know that I want to go take responsibility for all of those people I've been around them and I'm not sure that this is going to work out he did not want the burden of leadership, but by, by, by Sinai, Moses had grown into the role. So he knows what God is thinking and planning to do. And he goes down and he does some of that, hoping that it's going to work. And then he says to the people, look, Exodus thirty-two thirty. the next day, Moses said to the people, you have sinned a great sin. 
And now I will go up to the Lord. Perhaps I can make atonement for your sin. And he goes off. So Moses returned to the Lord and said, Alas, this people has sinned a great sin. They have made for themselves gods of gold. But now if you will forgive their sin, but if not, please blot me out of your book that you have written. That's another amazing offer. So God makes an amazing offer to Moses and Moses counter offers with an equally amazing offer. Moses basically says, look, forgive them. But if you're not going to forgive them, punish me so that they can live. It's really an amazing thing. And, and, And it has kind of disturbed me throughout my life because I wonder if I love people that much. I mean, I'll take a bullet and stuff and I'll get beaten up and stuff for but I don't know that I want to go to hell for anybody. Uh, although maybe my kids and my wife. So maybe that's the problem. Maybe I need to <laughs> love people more. I mean, Moses is incredibly loving for all of these people here. He just says, take me out, blot me out of your book so that they can keep on going with you. It's an incredible dis- description of love and it's nuts. I mean, it's a crazy request. You're talking to an angry God who is like on the verge of coming down. And Moses says this. I mean, he's not joking around. I don't think he's hoping that that'll get God to change his mind. I think it's a serious offer and it's nuts. But it's exactly what Jesus did, isn't it? He took the punishment that the sinful people deserved. Why? Because he loved them. Greater love has no one than this, that one lay down his life for his friend. Moses loved these people. He really deeply loved them. Take me out. I love these people now. And God denies this particular exchange, but not because it's a weird offer. God has to be thinking, that's a pretty good idea, Moses, and you'll find out later on how this is actually going to work when someone qualified makes that offer. Uh, You know, uh, that's all right. I mean, Moses is not sinless and infinitely powerful as Christ was. Uh, He is not the Lamb of God uh, appointed by God to take away the sins of the world. And so Moses just doesn't qualify for this particular offer. God's going to do exactly that later. But here, God just says, uh, uh, he just says, I'll punish who I will punish. So he denies the exchange. But the act of intercession resulted in God changing his mind. So he has said, I'm going to take everybody out, stand back, and I'll make a brand new nation out of you. You'll be basically the new Abraham. Moses makes a counteroffer. If you're going to do that, take me out instead of them. And God relents, and he changes his mind. Thousands of people died that day, but not hundreds of thousands. And Moses isn't done with his intercessory prayer. God has also threatened to leave them. At one point in the narrative, God says, all right, fine. I'm not going to kill all of you, but I am not going to go with you because I'm, I'm going to kill you on the way type of a thing. And I, verse, uh, chapter 33, verse 3, I will not go up among you lest I consume you on the way for you are a stiff-necked people. And Moses intercedes again down in verse 15. Moses says, if your presence will not go with me, do not bring us up from here. <laughs> don't God had offered to send an angel and angels are pretty awesome, but it's all about God's presence. It's all about God living in the midst of us. And Moses says, 
I, you know what, I just, I don't really even want to go unless you're, unless you're coming. And God changed his mind again. Verse 17, and the Lord said to Moses, this very thing that you have spoken, I will do. For you have found favor in my sight, and I know you by name. Now, if God has foreknowledge, how is it possible for him to change his mind? And I don't know the answer to that. And I'm not going to try to solve it because I don't think the Bible solves it. And I think when we try to do philosophical understandings of these kinds of things, the weight, we, we miss the weight of it. Moses changed God's mind through intercessory prayer that came from a heart of love. That's the emphasis here, not to get us to think about how is that possible for God to change, to change his mind and the fact that he knows all the future and, and actually exists outside of space. How is that possible? But that's not what we're supposed to be thinking here. What we're supposed to be thinking here is that prayer matters when it prayer changes things. Prayer has real power when it comes from leaders who love us. And Jesus is the ultimate example of this. Hebrews chapter 7, verse 25 Jesus is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him since he, is, since he always lives to make intercession for them. That them, you know, the antecedent of them is us. It's you and me. He lives to make intercession for you, for me, for us. Now the result of this is that the covenant was renewed, which was not how it looked like things were going to go at the beginning of this account. But the covenant was renewed. This could have been a total disaster, but it ended up bringing full restoration between God and mankind. Full restoration. If you look at chapter 33, verse 10, God says, behold, I am making a covenant. In other words, do over. And then you look in chapter 34. What are those instructions? A new set of the Ten Commandments. Now, the first set... God made, it was made out of stone and God made and God wrote on it. The second set, God says, okay, I'll write on it, but you're going to give me the tablets. Who knows why that was, but that's interesting that who knows the first few days or quite a while, he was up there for 40 days after that. I would guess that the first quite a long time of that was Moses chiseling out these things for God to write on, but they've got a do-over. He has negotiated a do-over. And as God renews the covenant, please take a look at this here in Exodus chapter 34, verse 6. God says something very interesting about himself, and it's very interesting, it's very important because it's repeated six times later in the Bible. And repetition is one way that we know this is important. When God says something many times, this is important. So look at what God says here. Exodus 34, verse 6. The Lord passed before him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord, and you know that's all capitalized, and so this is the proper name of God, the salvation name of God, Yahweh. And so God says, Yahweh, Yahweh, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and the fourth generation. And Moses quickly bowed his head toward the earth and worshiped. Let's look at each one of those phrases. God is merciful and gracious. That has to do with undeserved kindness. And these words, this kind of range of words, has to do with compassion. Uh, That God is aware of the fact that we are human beings and as a result we are not 
<laughs> you know, infinitely powerful, but we are frail. Many places in the Bible, you know, that we are like grass or like a flower of the field. The sun comes up and we're burnt away and so on. God knows this about us, and he also knows that we have a struggle with original sin. He knows this about us. He knows that. Psalm 103, as a father shows compassion to his children, so the Lord shows compassion to those who fear him, for he knows our frame. He remembers that we are dust. Now, sometimes fathers put impossible standards on their sons, exasperating them, always kind of annoyed and disappointed. Why can't you act like you're 10 years older type of thing? Why can't you make me more proud and that kind of a thing? But that is not the case with our Heavenly Father. Christian maturity is graceful. It is merciful. And we're also told that God is slow to anger, slow to anger, which means he is patient. It means he is not irritable toward us. God never has this kind of a response. You've got to be kidding me. You did what? (laughs) God never does that. And this is one of the highest expressions of maturity. It's listed as one of the fruit of the Spirit. It's listed in the 1 Corinthians 13 list of what love is. This is one of the most important expressions of a Christian in terms of maturity. Is that we are not easily bothered or annoyed or angry. Then we're also told that he is abounding in steadfast love. Abounding in steadfast love. Uh, Ruth and Boaz are the classic examples of steadfast love all the way through that book, doing things for other people um, at risk, taking risk in order to love people, um, doing whatever they can to bless people. I think, uh, let's say that you are a, a teenager, and I think one way to one way to gauge your maturity in Christ, one way to gauge your spiritual maturity is to ask yourself, am I a blessing to my siblings? Am I a blessing to my parents? Do I think about and plan how to bless people and bring joy into my home? Or am I really only mainly concerned with my own happiness? And I'm asking this of, uh, of teenagers, but I would ask this of all of you because we all live with human beings We all live with stiff-necked people, so are you a blessing to the stiff-necked people that you live with? Dads, when you arrive home, do you bring joy? Is it like a light that has come into the house and a joy that comes into the house, or do you bring stress? Do you bring like a deep intensity like, dad's home, better make sure that everything's in order because here comes dad. And God, of course, is the ultimate example of this abounding in steadfast love. He is not distant. He is not harsh, but he is very personal. He is tender, and he often refers to us as his children. He refers to the church as his bride. He is abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. And that word faithful means reliable, firm, that he sticks with us. Psalm 91, which Joe read to us earlier, he will cover you with his pinions, which means his feathers. He will cover you with his pinions and under his wings you will find refuge. His faithfulness is a shield and buckler. You see, we can, we can trust him to stick with us. And this is important 
especially for those of us who may have been betrayed or abandoned at various times in our life or live with people and we're not quite sure if we're on good terms with them and we're always kind of wondering what's going to happen and what's the future of this relationship, we can trust God to stick with us and to work all things for our good and to return for us soon. And we're also told keeping steadfast love for thousands. In other words, this is not a small love. I was thinking about this. I probably know hundreds of people, like most of you, right? We know hundreds of people that I could call by name. And there are probably quite a few dozens of those that I really deeply love and that I feel like close to. God's love is abounding for thousands. That's incredible. He has a deep, close, personal concern and tenderness and affection for thousands not a small love. And then we're told forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. So God is basically using every Hebrew word that he can figure out in order to make sure, look, I forgive all of that stuff. <laughs> all of that. Iniquity, transgression, sin. You know, this whole incident to the golden calf is situated right between two long sections about the tabernacle. If you've noticed that, if you've kind of done a quick survey of it, the golden calf happens after our little mini-series on the tabernacle, all kinds of instructions about the tabernacle, and then after the golden calf incident, there's another long section on the tabernacle where they actually build it. So the whole first section is the instructions, the diagrams, the schematic or whatever, and the whole second section is the building of it, and right plopped right in the middle of that is the golden calf episode. That's interesting. This whole thing is surrounded by the tabernacle. Well, what is the tabernacle? What is the purpose of the tabernacle? It is a system of atonement for sin. It is all about forgiveness. So it is true, you know, sin is serious and there's no doubt about this. And we should all shrink back from this particular story because all, because all of us could fall into some weird, odd, fast and deep betrayal of God. In fact, the writer of Hebrews, who is an expert in helping us understand how to read the Old Testament law, he says, take care, brothers, lest there be any of you, uh, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God, but exhort one another every day, as long as it is called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. So we should shrink back from these stories, recognizing that there's a pretty fine line between me and that ancient Jew but the very next phrase in Exodus here, um, the takeaway is that God forgives. He is forgiving. He forgives iniquity and transgression and sin. Ephesians 1, 7, in Christ we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace. And that's important. We have redemption through his blood. See, sin requires death. Sin requires death. We're told here in Exodus, he by no means clears the guilty. In other words, sin must be punished. Jeremiah 25 gives us a picture of God's wrath against sin. Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel said to me, take from my hand this cup of the wine of wrath and make all the nations to whom I send you drink it. They shall drink and stagger and be crazed because of the sword that I am sending among them. Sin must be punished. It's got to be punished. God doesn't indulge sin. He doesn't just let horribly abusive people go on and on and on all the way through eternity. Uh, 
uh, hurting his people and so on. He can't just sweep it under the carpet and say, well, that wasn't that big of a deal. No, sin must be punished. But for all who repent and believe in Christ, we're told by Isaiah 53, the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. The Lord has laid on him, Christ, the sin of all of us and punished him instead of us. So that the Westminster Shorter Catechism words it this way, justification is an act of God's free grace wherein he pardons all our sins and accepts us as righteous in his sight only for the righteousness of Christ imputed to us and received by faith alone. So what? Now we're on the last, the last page here. So what? Now we've done the theology, we understand the passage, we see the major themes here, but now we just have to say, all right, so what? And I would propose four so what's. And the first thing is to know God and to commit your life to saying, look, I might do a lot of things on this earth, but the main thing that I need to do is to know God. I need to know him really well because worshiping a make-believe God is hazardous for our health. The second thing that I would propose as a response to the golden calf debacle is to be humble. Be humble. For me to recognize I am no different from that Jewish guy standing there all those thousands of years ago, kind of confused, wondering, I don't know about what's going on here, and oh, okay, let's do this. And if I'm not careful, I could quickly and deeply betray God. And some of you have seen this in your life. You're going along, you're singing the worship songs, you're doing the stuff, going to the Bible studies, and then all of a sudden, boom, a quick and deep betrayal. And you're looking back saying, how did, I, how did that happen? We all have that potential. They're like Peter on the morning of Christ's arrest. So we need to be humble. Number three is to be an intercessor. Christians pray for each other because we love each other. That's a pretty good sentence. I'll say it again. Christians pray for each other because we love each other. I'm not going to actually make you do this. It always bugs me when you're forced to do something in a room. But rhetorically, look around this room. Are you praying for these people? You praying for each other? You praying for me? It's the most important thing that the elders do every week as we pray for you guys. And this is very different than wanting to control each other. Crawford Loritz tweeted last week, he said, grace-oriented churches watch out for each other. Legalistic churches watch each other. That's good, huh? Grace-oriented churches watch out for each other. Legalistic churches watch each other. Do you hear that difference? Look, none of us needs to pretend like we have it all together. I don't. We don't have to pretend like we have it all together. We don't have it all together. That is the whole point of gathering on a Sunday morning, is that a bunch of sinners get together to worship a gracious God who loves us. And we can help each other in so many ways especially through prayer. And this is especially important for leaders. If you're a parent, if you're a boss, small group leader, whatever, elder, deacon, love your people. Love them with grace and with mercy 
and pray for them, knowing and believing that prayer really does move God and change horrible realities. And it's hard to understand how all of that's possible in light of God's sovereignty and foreknowledge, and I realize that that's a a, a tricky thing to understand, but the Bible leaves that to be tricky. God wants leaders, God wants people to care about each other enough that they pray for each other. And the purpose of the prayer is believing that this thing is all bizarre and weird. And God, I am asking you to move it here into an area of redemption, something that is beautiful and clean and good. The fourth thing I would suggest as a response to the golden calf is to believe the gospel because this is the end of this whole story is a full restoration between God's people and God. It's a full restoration. God doesn't go with the plan that he had where, okay, I'm going to send you an angel because I'm afraid I'm going to kill you all on the way because you're stiff-necked. It's a full restoration, and everything that we read in the previous chapter is about how the system of atonement is going to work and where God's tent is going to be right in the middle, and all that stuff is renewed. It's a full restoration. It was true in Exodus 34 and especially true after the crucifixion. Isaiah 53, 5, he, Christ, was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace And with his wounds, we are healed, not mostly healed. The blood of Christ really does work. Repentance really does work to clean our sins and to make us right with God. So let me conclude with this. After this whole story, the conclusion of it in Exodus chapter 34, verse 8, Moses quickly bowed his head toward the earth and worshiped. I'm not sure if the author intends this, but it's interesting to me that the word quickly appears at the beginning and at the end of this story. At the beginning of the story, the people quickly turned aside, chapter 32, verse 8. And at the end of the story, Moses quickly worshipped. Let us do that now. Quickly and deeply worship God as we respond to the preaching of his word. God in heaven, you are a great and awesome God. You have created all things, and therefore you are the owner of all things, and we are yours. And we know that in your mind is the way of life, and you have presented that to us in your word, and you have given us your Holy Spirit. You have sent Jesus to die for our sins, raising him again on the third day. You have made us so many promises and giving us everything that we need for life and godliness. And so we pray, Lord, that you would soften our hearts as we respond to this word from the golden calf, that we see you in your glory and that we see you in your grace. Help us to persevere until you return. And Lord, we say, come, Lord Jesus, come. Amen.